Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, again, good morning. I want to ask, uh, how was your Christmas? But it's pretty tough to, to get an answer back. But uh, I can all hear you anyway. You're all saying, uh, like Zach just did a minute ago, it, it was different. It was different. Ours was too. Uh, I was thinking on the way here this morning, remember when Zoom Zoom used to be about a car, not about how we would share Christmas with each other. A family was driving by their local church on December 27th when a little boy in the car noticed that the nativity scene had been taken down from the front of their church. He said, innocently enough, I see they've put Jesus away for another year. Now, we all know what he meant, but there is truth in the fact that many people put Jesus away after Christmas, never knowing that Christmas is not really about the presence under the tree, of course. It's about his coming to earth to teach us and to make a way for us to have his constant presence with us all the year round and, of course, on into eternity. Excuse me. <clears throat> if we want to be like Jesus then, if we want our lives to reflect his character, we obviously then need to know more about who he is, about what he's like. In the scriptures, someone's name had a great significance. A name wasn't simply how you identified someone, but in today's age, naming children doesn't mean the same kind of thing. It's not such a big deal anymore. You figure out what the hot names are, Liam or Sophia, and you name your kids, and and away you go. I grew up with a kid whose last name was Cross. His parents chose to name him Chris, Chris Cross. Uh, There's another family whose last name was Dover. Uh, They chose to name their eldest son Ben. Uh, You can figure that one out. And then there was the Foreman family. You know the heavyweight boxer, George Foreman. George had five sons. You know what he named them? All of them, George. All five, Georges. I just imagine it made it easy to call one of them by calling them all. In ancient times, however, they didn't play around with names like that. Sometimes when a child was coming, they would reflect and pray for months on end about what the name should be. They wanted the name to mean something, you see. They wanted to name a child a name that they hoped he or she would grow into. Mary and Joseph were told to name their new baby Jesus, which means Savior or the Lord saves. Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter because Jesus was planning, hoping, praying that Simon would grow up to be a rock. And that's what, of course, the name Peter, Petros, meant, rock. He wanted Peter to grow into that name. It was intended to reflect the person's character, to tell a story about that person, just in the name. That's why the names given to Jesus were so significant. They, they tell us his story and give us a picture of what he was like. If I pick up the phone and I hear the greeting, Dad, that establishes a context between me and who's speaking to me that is stronger than iron. And everything else they say, any request they make, any confession they might offer, takes place within the context of that relationship that's expressed in that one word, Dad. When I was a little kid, I would get these horrible headaches that would get so strong I would call for my parents, for my dad, who would come to my room and remind me once again that everything was going to be okay and that I was safe. I knew in that moment that I was hearing from someone who was there for me. 
Then came that night when I was afraid and I called my dad and he finally said, Lorne, you can't keep calling me in the middle of the night. You're 35 years old. Each name of Jesus, and most scholars agree that there were at least 100 of them. Some say as many as 600 names throughout the Bible. Each name recorded in Scripture, each one is a window through which we see Jesus more clearly, which leads us, of course, to getting to know him better. And knowing him better is critical in order to truly value and worship him and reflect his character to the world around us. Last week, we set out on the journey of looking at some of the names Jesus, specifically the titles that Jesus was given by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, some 700 years before Jesus was born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." We looked at the first three last week, leaving us with the last, but of course, certainly not least, Prince of Peace. So 700 plus years before the very first Christmas, so that would be like 2,000, I don't know, 700 years ago, Isaiah, a prophet of God, predicted that the Savior of the world was going to come and that he would be called among these other titles, Prince of Peace. So what does the word peace mean to you? What pictures does it evoke? How would you describe peace? More importantly, I guess today would be, do you have it? Well, before we get too far into this, I want to say a few words about what peace is not, according to the Bible. I want to be real clear on this because peace is often misunderstood. It gets confused with some others. For many, peace of mind means self-medicating with something until they're numb and they no longer feel the pain anymore. For others, it means hopping from one relationship to the next, hoping that somebody will fill the void in their life, and they don't, and they never do. For some, it means being busy and staying busy all the time, so at night they can just collapse into bed and not think about anything. Because anytime they're quiet, haunting thoughts and fears and a sense of loneliness creeps in on them. For other people, it means becoming a workaholic and overachieving so they can get all these attributes of success to prove to the world, I am somebody. For other people, it's trying new age gimmicks like crystals or sitting in a lotus position and contemplating the lint in their navel. I don't know. Uh, That's not peace of mind. For still others, it's the lie that's given when you run from a conflict, when you try to avoid something, and in that moment, experience a momentary relief. That momentary relief is so not the peace that we're talking about here. A lack of peace makes people selfish and small. It stealthily steals all joy and energy and compassion. The peace of Christ is not an individualistic search for a way out, or for easy living conditions. We're called not just to peace, but the peace of Christ, which is not so much about the external world around us, but speaks to what actually reigns in our hearts. The Apostle Paul wrote, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. God calls us very clearly to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to become a peace-filled people. But we don't live in a world that promotes Christ's peace reigning in our hearts. We don't live in a world that produces peaceful people. 
The word rule that Paul uses here is an interesting word. It was used in athletic events in those days for, to represent the authority of the one who made the final call, if you will, the referee or the umpire in the athletic contest. Once the umpire decided a ruling, that was it. It was done. Paul says it ought to be that way in our hearts. The peace of Christ ought to just rule. It ought to have the final word. It should just reign in our hearts. So what is the peace of Christ? The best definition I could find was one by, uh, put forward by the author, uh, Dallas Willard. He says, the peace of Christ is the settled assurance that because of God's care and God's competence, this universe is a perfectly safe place for me to be. If I was writing that, I might have added in brackets, even though it doesn't look like it. A mom is awake in her bedroom and there's a real bad thunderstorm going on. She's a little concerned about her small son. And then there's this tremendous flash of lightning and a crash of thunder. So she starts down the hallway because she knows he's going to be terrified in this. But much to her surprise, he's coming towards her down the hallway. And he has a big smile all over his face. He says, Mom, you'll never guess what. I was looking out the window at the storm and God took my picture. He was convinced, you see, that God was at work and therefore the universe was a perfectly safe place for him to be. You have to come to grips with this. We all have to come to grips with this. Is the universe a safe place for us to be? In spite of all the apparently peace-shattering things going on around us. This is the settled assurance that Jesus lived in. Jesus and his disciples, for instance, were in a boat, and there's this big storm going on. Of course, Jesus has to go through storms. Notice that, just a little side point there. Jesus didn't miss the storm. Jesus is going through the storm, just like we all do, and just as his friends did. The disciples are all frantic, and everything's just kind of chaos. What is Jesus doing in the boat during the storm? He's sleeping. Now, why does Matthew include that information that Jesus is sleeping? Why is that so important? Because he wants us to understand that given the care and the competence of his father, Jesus is convinced that the universe is a perfectly safe place for him to be. There's this tremendous storm going on, but he lives in this settled assurance, we can call it peace, that he is safe in the hands of his God, his Father. And so he sleeps right through it. What would it look like for us to have that kind of peace? For the peace of Christ, the peace that characterized Jesus to reign in us. Well, our anxiety level would go way down for one. We would have the subtle trust that our life was safe in the hands of God. We wouldn't be tormented by our inadequacy. We'd be unhurried people. We might be busy, we might have lots of things to do, but we would have this inner calmness and, and poise that comes from living in the very presence of God. We wouldn't say so many foolish things that we say because we wouldn't speak without thinking. We live in the confidence and assurance that God's love is going to be with us forever and ever. We would trust God enough to give, give of all the resources that he's given to us. We wouldn't have to hoard one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas is Jesus came to give us peace. 
It was announced, of course, from the very beginning. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, they said, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So Isaiah announces peace, and the angels announce peace, and when Jesus gets his own ministry, it's all about peace on earth. In fact, after his resurrection, and before he goes back to heaven, he says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. He says the kind of gift that I give, nobody else can give to you at Christmas or any other time of the year. You can't get it in a bottle. You can't get it in a pill. You can't get it in an experience or read about it in a book. The kind of peace I give, only I can give to you. It isn't like the peace that this world gives. What, what is the kind of peace that this world gives? It's phony and it's fragile. It doesn't last. How many peace treaties have been broken in history? Well, honestly, practically, if not every one. Dissonance just rules the day. In just the last 100 years, where well over 80 million people have died on battlefields. There is heightened tension all over the world. Some researchers have done work and said of the last 4,000 years of recorded history, there's been about 275, plus or minus about 10 years, depending on which person, about 275 years of peace in 4,000 years. There's conflicts in the South China Sea, the Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in Syria. There are nine or ten going on in Africa right now. One of my unfavorite, hear me in that, unfavorite Christmas stories is about the large silver star that adorned the top of the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. One day back in the 1800s, the Roman Catholic Church, which shared a part of the building with the Greek Orthodox Church, decided to take down the silver star and replace it with their own star. But the Greek Orthodox Church refused to let them do that. The Greek Orthodox Church was supported by Russia, and the Roman Catholic Church was supported by France. But it was Turkey who ruled over Palestine at the time. When Turkey sided with the Roman Catholic Church, Russia declared war on Turkey. Immediately, France and England allied themselves with Turkey and fought what history now calls the Crimean War, which lasted four years from 1853 to 1856. At the end of that war, after all of that, the star came down. All this, this whole war started over a star on the top of a church. Isn't it ironic that in the very place of the birth of the Prince of Peace, there has almost always been conflict and war? Why is it that nations can't establish or sustain peace? Why is it that marriages and families and business partnerships and friendships spend inordinate amounts of time in interpersonal conflict? And why is it that peace eludes even the privacy of our own hearts? Can we have peace? Or are we just going to pieces? There are three different pieces to peace in the Bible spread out amongst about 790 verses that deal with peace. So let's look at every one of them. Here we go. No, we're not going to do that. But I can summarize them into three categories. The three pieces of peace, if you will. There's external peace. That's peace with God. There is internal peace. That's peace with your, within yourself. And there's external peace, 
So eternal, internal, and external peace, that's with others in relationship with other people. So let's look at these three kinds. The first kind of peace that Jesus came to give, of course, is peace with God. Peace with God, that's spiritual peace. This is the most important peace because it affects every other peace. You know when a relationship is out of whack, when you're in tension or strain or in a conflict in a relationship with someone you care about, peace goes out the window, doesn't it? Nothing does that more than being out of sync with God. The Bible says the first thing that Jesus came to do is restore peace between God and us. Why do we need this? Because anytime we go our own way, we are really saying, I think I know better than God. My will be done, not yours. I know what God says to do in his word, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be the Lord and master of my own life. That rebellion instantly puts us into conflict with God. And the Bible says there is no peace to be found there. We get disconnected. That's why God feels a million miles away sometimes. God doesn't want that. He made you to be connected to him. So here's what the Bible says. Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Psychologists today give other answers, like just learn to live with your guilt and conflict, or, or just learn to forgive yourself. Baloney. That's no help at all. The problem is neither you nor they have the power to forgive and to grant peace. Only God does, and only God can give you a clear conscience. That's a priceless gift, isn't it? The gift of a clear conscience. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's priceless. And Jesus offers it to us free. To have our past forgiven, wiped clean, a brand new, fresh start. The good news of Christmas is Jesus came to give the gift to each of us of his forgiveness. That's the good news. Jesus said he didn't come to condemn, but to save, to live up to his name, if you will. After all, it is, it is he who is unto, born unto us. Unto you is born a savior. You can be forgiven. So how do I let Christ save me? Well, that's easy. Simply trust him. Everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. You simply admit your need of him. You confess your waywardness, that you've been going in different directions than going with God, and then simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, took your punishment, and that you are now free and forgiven. While in high school, I was a lifeguard. I didn't last long as a lifeguard because every time I saw somebody raise their hand in the pool, drowning, I'd go, yes, yes, I see that hand. God bless you. Is there another? Is there another? No, I made that part up. It didn't actually happen. One of the things all lifeguards know is you can't save anybody as long as they're trying to save themselves. They'll take you under the water with them if you approach them like that. As a lifeguard, you swim out to them. They're flailing around in the water, and you're taught to wait until they finally give up on their own and collapse. Once they give up, it's real easy. You just put your arm over their shoulder or around underneath their chin and swim back to shore. Our problem is we're always trying to save ourselves. We think we can work our way into heaven, even if we don't say it. 
God, my good, good works are this high and my not so good works are this low. Therefore, God, look at the balance here. I'm a good guy. But God doesn't grade on the curve. He says only perfect people need apply for the perfect place on their own merit. So who amongst us is perfect? We need a savior and he's provided. Just accept him and the result is, God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you because they trust in you. Maybe it's a financial crisis and you don't know where you're going to get the resources that you need. Maybe you've got an enormous difficulty ahead of you for which you need wisdom and you don't know how to, how to go through it. Maybe you're just crushed by some guilt or sin in your life. It burdens you. It keeps burdening you. Maybe there's a health crisis. Maybe there's a relational issue. Maybe there's marital problems and you don't know how you're going to solve those. God is just waiting for you to turn to him. So right now, just say, God, here it is. I just give it to you. I'm just going to give all these things to you. And here's the good news. God's just waiting for you to do that. He's just longing to take them to let the peace of Christ rule and reign in your heart. The bottom line, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done already for us. Peace with God doesn't come from what you do. Peace with God comes from what Jesus has already done on the cross. Even when we were God's enemies, he made peace with us. He took the initiative because his son died for us. Now that we are at peace with God, so we will be saved by his son's life. He does not expect us to appease him with our works, but simply to confess our need and dependence upon him. He gave himself to pay for all of our sins. That's the first kind of peace, peace with God. It's necessary for all the pieces to come. The second kind of peace is peace within. The Bible has a word for this emotional, soulful kind of peace, the peace that comes inside of me. It's the peace of God. We've just talked about the peace with God. Now it's the peace of God. When I have peace with God, then I can get the peace of God inside me. Remember Colossians we just looked at. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Notice now the word in. It's inside of us. It's internal. It's in our mind, our heart, our soul. We often shorten this simply to call it peace of mind. Why is it that so many of us feel restless? Why is it that most of us feel tension or sense, a sense of conflictedness even within ourselves? Why is it that conflict deadeners in the form of pills and drugs and other escape endeavors set records every single year around the world? So for the, questions, for the answers to these questions, I turn to the source that, of course, we all go to when we need answers. Well, the internet, right? Everybody thinks they have a key to it. There are more than 944 million results from typing in peace of mind. 944 million. It turns out that peace of mind is big business. Home security systems, funeral homes, insurance companies, used car dealers, a few were investigation services. We'll give you peace of mind by following someone for you. Another was a plumbing warranty. Uh, you know, uh, we'll give you peace of mind by insuring your toilet. Well, that's what I call peace of mind. 
Everybody thinks they have a key to peace of mind or at least wants you to think that they do, so you'll buy their product. There's a perfume called peace. The ad says, wear it to feel serenity. Now, folks, if it were all that easy, wouldn't it be great? Just put a little perfume on and you have peace of mind. You just bask in serenity. Peace is such an important concept in life that people will do almost anything to find it. They will travel to exotic places at great expense. They will sniff up their nose a brain-destroying drug. They will experiment with new age rituals. They will try all kinds of things. But the truth is, very few people in this world are at peace within, peace with themselves. I have noticed that there are three things that tend to rob us of this peace. These things steal or pilfer the peace of mind that God intends for us to have. First is, when circumstances are uncontrollable, we often lose our peace. Pastor Zach was just talking about that, that peace that, that makes us feel well within our soul. He sang about it. The peace that comes from saying, thy will be done, rather than my will be done. That's how you escape this, this uncontrollable feeling. It's not about controlling it on your behalf. It's the understanding that God is in control. Thy will be done. When we think it's uncontrollable and there's nothing that can be done about it, that gets us frustrated and we lose our peace of mind. Secondly, when people are unchangeable, we tend to lose our peace. The quickest way to lose your peace of mind is to try to change somebody else because most people are just not willing, just not really going to change. So we get frustrated and we lose our peace. And finally, when problems are unexplainable, we know that life isn't fair. Not everybody has a happy ending and lives happily ever after. Things don't always turn out right according to our perspective. What makes it more difficult is that you are not always going to know, way, know why. We aren't going to know why. And if you think you need to know why and don't, well, you lose your patience. You lose your peace. God has promised peace of mind because it's a fundamental need of your life. And then there's this third kind of peace. Peace with others. There's a real strong relational component, of course, to peace. If it's, as, if it's possible, as what Paul writes to us, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The peace of Christ is not placating people, but imagine how much less hostility there would be in your life if you didn't need to compare or judge or compete with others. You want to strengthen your marriage? Get close to God. Because if you're growing closer to God and your spouse is growing closer to God, it pulls you closer to each other. It just will. The more out of sync we are with God, the more out of sync we're going to be with other people. And the further away we get from God, the more cranky we're going to get each and every time. The world is not getting more peaceful. The world is getting more conflicted. You will be hurt in life. It's just a fact of life. Intentionally or unintentionally, it will happen. How you respond to that hurt, however, will determine the level of peace in your life. For your own sake, your own hope, for your own peace, you've got to let go of that hurt. Resentment doesn't hurt those others. It only hurts you. You're the one stewing and spewing while they're out there living their lives. Some of you are still letting people from your past hurt you today, and that's not good. 
You've got to let go of your grudges. But you say, I can't. They hurt me too much. I can't forgive them. Well, you're absolutely right. You can't. That's why you need Jesus. Only he can give you the power to let go, to forgive. Why? Because they deserve it? No, of course they don't deserve it. But for your own sake, so you can get on with your life and experience peace. You can find peace if you're willing to do the things Christ says to do. A person in whom the peace of Christ reigns is an oasis of sanity in a world of pandemonium. A community, a church in which the peace of Christ reigns can change the world. We're called, we're called to the peace of Christ for it to reign, for it to rule in our hearts. How are we doing? Jesus is the one and only answer. When we have the Prince of Peace in our lives, then we're going to have peace with each other. These three pieces of peace, these three kinds of peace build on each other and they all start and they all end with Jesus. The most common greeting by far in the New Testament is grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. We're to live peaceful lives. Jesus says three times in John 20, be at peace. Peace be with you. If Jesus says, I'm offering you a gift of peace, he means it. It's not something you work for. It's not something you deserve again. It's not something you try hard for. You don't even beg for peace. You don't plead for it. It's simply a gift. This peace has nothing to do with problem-free living. Don't be confused. If you have to wait until all your problems are solved before you find peace, you're never going to be at peace. Jesus told us, in this world, you will have trouble. You're going to have trouble or tribulation. Count on it. Peace of mind does not come from conflict-free living. Much of your life, you're going to have conflict. But did you know you could have peace in the midst of the conflict? How do you enjoy these pieces of peace that we just talked about? Peace with God, peace of God, peace with others. The Bible says, do three things. Stress will go down, peace will go up, and you're going to find that you're becoming a new person inside if you'll actually follow what the Bible says on how to enjoy the peace of God. First, accept what you cannot change. Now, before you start all kind of going off on me here, this is a series of, of things. You, each one builds on the other. You can't just take one on their own, okay? Accept what you cannot change. Worrying about what you cannot change certainly won't give you peace. Becoming resentful or bitter or guilty about it will certainly not give you peace. So you can stop beating yourself over the head with those things. Self-pity over things you cannot change in your life will never give you peace. There is only one thing that will bring peace in your life, and that is acceptance of what you cannot change. In the Bible, in the book of 2 Samuel 12, there's a story of King David who had a baby that was dying, and David did everything he could to keep that baby from dying. He prayed in the temple for seven days and nights, all, the t all 24 hours. He fasted, he wept, he cried, he pleaded with God. Yet on the seventh day, the baby died. God did not answer his prayer the way that David wanted. When David's advisors heard this, they were scared to death. They thought, this guy's nearly over the edge with the baby near death. When he finds out the child has actually died, he may lose it altogether. So they're kind of whispering in the background. They're afraid to tell him. But David kind of, uh, uh, what's going on? He hears them and he says, has the child died? And they say, yes. 
And David gets up, he goes and takes a bath, puts on clean clothes, he eats, and goes back to work. The advisors are astounded, like, what are you doing? You were in agony when he was near death. Now that he's died, you're okay. What's happened? And David says, well, the child has gone to heaven, and one day I will die, and I will be reunited and go to be in heaven with that child. In the meantime, there's absolutely nothing else I can do. I've got to get back to work. That's what I'm called to. He accepted what he, could, what he could not change. Let me tell you one thing that keeps us from peaceful circumstances, what keeps us tense and nervous and stressed out about the things in our life. It's our demand for an explanation. When something goes wrong in our life, when something doesn't happen the way that we think it ought to happen, we ask why. Why, God? Why is this happening? Why did you allow this? Why is this happening to me? And by going over and over and over it in your mind, trying to figure out why something happened, we're kept in turmoil. There is no peace in that. Two things quickly about that. First, God doesn't owe us an explanation for anything. Are we willing to actually pray, thy will be done? God doesn't owe us an an explanation. He's not obligated to explain everything that he does. In fact, we probably couldn't even understand it if he tried. We are the creation. He's the creator. God is good. We know that. God is just. We know that. God is fair. We know that. He's loving, and he understands things that we possibly cannot. We need to just say, thy will be done. Two, explanations honestly never bring peace anyway. There's no direct connect. Oh, now I understand I'm at peace. I was struck this week once again with that the people of Israel knew for more than 700 years in advance that the promised Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. Yet at the end of three years of ministry, when they're all basically shouting Hosanna and recognizing him as the Messiah, supposedly, at the end of those three years, he's, he's, wherein he's repeatedly talked about peace over and over and over again, what brought him into conflict with them so so much so that they wanted to have him crucified was that he was not a prince of war. He was not on earth to lead them in this freedom fight to the death with the Roman Empire. They had the truth. They had the explanation of who he was going to be, but it made absolutely no difference. Jesus told us that in this world, we're going to have trouble, big problems. He told us that that would be the rule rather than the exception. Yet when trouble comes, we're continually surprised and we want an explanation. We feel resentful, bitter, angry, upset. Explanations never satisfy. What comforts us, what does satisfy, is the presence of God in our life. Not God's explanations, God's care and concern. That's what comforts us. Millions of people have prayed the serenity prayer. You probably are familiar with this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's a very famous prayer by a man named Reinhold Niebuhr. But it is edited. There are more lines to the serenity prayer that you may never have heard. 
The power of peace is not in the first part of this prayer, which we've just read. It's in the part that is left out. It goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is not as I would have it. Trusting that you, God, will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. It makes a difference, doesn't it? All of the powers in the second part of the prayer. It's through the acceptance, the trust, the surrender that you find the path to peace. Here's what you do. When you go through an experience that you don't like, you do what you can, but then you accept what you can't change. God says this is just the starting point. Remember, just the starting point to peace. Because he is mighty God. That's one of the names in the title. He is mighty God. And while we cannot change some things, God certainly can. That's why we, number two, trust in God's loving care. Philippians 4, Philippians is just maybe my favorite book of all. Philippians 4 at the top of that list, 2 and 4. Uh, I'd have a tough time separating them. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which ex exceeds anything we can understand. Isn't that great? Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. That's the path to peace. Trust God's loving care. But most people respond to the uncontrollable, the unexplainable, the unchangeable situations of life with one of two responses, and both of these are fatal mistakes. Some, when they face an uncontrollable situation, just try harder. They become more controlling. And the more their life gets out of control, the more controlling and compulsive and manipulative they become. The more unhappy is the result. And they make everybody around them miserable as well. Others are the exact opposite extreme, and they just want to give up. They just want to lie down. They don't want to try anymore. They give in to despair, basically saying, I am a victim, woe is me, and I will be a victim for the rest of my life. They swallow and wallow in shallow pity parties. Both of those responses are foolish mistakes that don't work. Instead, we need to take the third step in the path to peace, the third and most important choice, to surrender to God's loving control. See, the real reason we are in turmoil, we have so much tension internally, is because we're fighting a war with God. We think we know better. Every day we wake up, we have a crucial decision to make. Who's going to be in charge of this day? Who's going to be in charge of my life today? Me or God? Who's going to be in control? Am I going to be in control or is God going to be in control? Because we think we know better, there are verses in the Bible we would rather ignore. We'd rather make up our own rules, play our own game, be our own umpires, if you will. We think we're God. And the more we take control, though, the more miserable we become and the more out of control our life becomes because it simply doesn't work. We are at war with the real God when we try to play God and war and peace only go together in a book title. The Bible is very clear about the results of these decisions. 
It says, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to one place only, to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. There it is. Those are our alternatives. Death or life and peace. Which would you choose? I don't know if you've thought this through, but it's obvious. There's, there's no way you're going to win when you're arguing with God. There's an old saying, your arms are too short to box with God. If you fight with God, you're going to lose. He loves you too much to let you win. Because when you think you've won, you've really actually lost out for all eternity. If you want deep, personal, satisfying peace of mind, heart, and soul, you've got to surrender control of your life totally to God. It's the only way. How do you know if you've done that? Well, the evidence is this. Evidence of a surrendered life always wraps itself around obedience. When God says, do it, we do it. We don't care if we don't understand it. We don't care if anybody else is doing it. We don't care if it's possible. We don't care if it's hard or if it's easy. We do it. If God says, do it in his word, whether it makes sense to me from a human standpoint or not, we do it because we're surrendered to his control. When we listen to his word and follow his direction, what is the result of that? It's always the same. It's peace. Those who love your instructions have great peace and do not stumble. Today you may be in, a, in an uncontrollable circumstance. You may be experiencing an unexplainable problem. But the good news of Christmas is you can still have peace. You can have the peace of God right in the middle of it all. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the single reconciling agent in the entire universe. There is no other. In fact, the Bible teaches that when we put our hand back into his hand, we are reconciled back to God in a miraculous and eternal way. Beyond that, he puts within us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of reconciliation, the spirit that treasures peace and unity, the spirit that gives you the ability to build bridges instead of build walls, the spirit that gives you the ability to be engaged in loving, lasting relationships. Some dissonance-weary people among us, perhaps this moment, might just be weary enough today to say, I want to stop I want to stop this spinning. I want to stop fighting God. I want to stop pushing away the tug I feel from him now and then. I want to actually raise the white flag of surrender and say, oh God, I want your peace to reign in my heart, to rule in me. I want to be reconciled to you through your son, Jesus. It's available to you today as a gift. It's the testimony of everyone who has trusted Jesus. Peace. Christ of the universe has come to, your, to be your personal savior. The truths about Christ have to be personalized. You need to, be, to take what he says in faith and reach out and say, I need you. Perhaps today it's the time for you to turn to Jesus. We're never going to have peace on earth until the, peace, the Prince of Peace reigns in everybody's heart. When you do, Jesus will become the giver of counsel you can build your entire life on. He will become the source of power that will enable you to overcome the trials of this life and overcome the grave so you can go on into the next life with eternal peace in him. He will be your wonderful counselor. He will be your mighty God. He will be your everlasting father. And he 
will give you peace. The Prince of Peace. Let's sing and worship him. The Prince of Peace. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.